Welcome to episode three of How Supply Chain Saves the World, which is on the future of plastics and recycling. We talk a lot about moving from a linear economy to a circular economy. Uh, in a linear economy, we throw a product away after it's used and that's the end of it. In a circular economy, we close the loop and recognize that our waste is hopefully the raw material for a new cycle. Walking into a recycling facility, as I did last week, courtesy of Suez Waste Management, felt like the best way for me to understand the shift to a circular economy. What I would have previously considered as waste was being handled as raw materials for a new rebirth. Huge piles of mixed recyclable waste were being unloaded into bays at one end of the facility. At the other end, uh, it resembled something like the movie Wally as cubes of sorted recycled waste were piled up on top of each other, ready for the next stage of the recycling process. I didn't just see the sorting process in front of my eyes, but I couldn't help but imagine the journey that this raw material had already taken from fridge and cupboard, to bin, to bin, to refuse truck, to local depot and to here. I imagined also the onward journey of these wally cubes onto a truck, a port, a boat, across an ocean and a sea, into a processing site and then back through to another manufacturer ready to use again. I couldn't help but imagine the incredibly high levels of wastage in the system. The wrong pack put in the wrong bin, the right pack put not in a bin. The dairy product exploding in a truck contaminating a shipment. The men and women on the site that I saw manually removing contaminants from a conveyor belt. Then, all, then you can't help but think of the energy taken to drive the whole process. I mean, a lean engineer would have a field day when assessing this end-to-end -end supply chain. Straight after my tour, I sat down with Dr. Adam Reed, one of the UK's top authorities on waste and recycling and Suez's Director of External Affairs. I couldn't help but go into the conversation with a bit of negativity. What shocked me about the whole experience is how hopeful and positive I felt afterwards. Every change has to start somewhere. There's just so much we can do to improve the situation. We've now got not just the technology, but the finance, the policies, and most importantly, the will to drive real change. So if there's one thing you should definitely take away from this episode, it's the potential impact of the extended producer's responsibility legislation that's coming into effect internationally by 2023. That legislation plans to place the responsibility for the cost of bringing waste back through the system onto the original producer of the waste. When considering the circular economy, this makes total sense. But the implications on consumer industries are huge because suddenly the inefficiencies of the recycling process that I saw will be the problem of the original producer of the product. So if you work in a consumer business, this podcast is probably worth a listen. That's it from me for now. I hope you enjoy the episode, but most importantly, I hope you find it insightful. If you do, please pass this on to others so that we can continue to grow a community around the series, because that community is what can drive meaningful change. <laughs> Okay, so welcome to episode three of How Supply Chain Saves the World. And uh, this episode, we are jumping right into the critical and very lively uh, existing debate on plastics and recycling. 
and I'm joined by Dr. Adam Reed. Hello, Adam. Hello, John. How you doing, mate? I'm well. Thank you for coming to see me on site today. Thanks very much. It's been a really interesting day, and, and we had a lot of a uh, lot of fun over dinner last night. We're also joined by Sarah Ottaway, who is um, the sustainability and social value lead for uh, Suez. She's not mic'd up, but um, feel free to heckle uh, throughout the episode if either of us are talking absolute nonsense at any point in time. Thanks a lot for coming along as well. Oh, thank you for being here and uh, my heckling skills are already on prime. Good stuff, good stuff. <laughs> so Adam, you are Director of External Affairs for Suez Waste Management. Suez are one of the, the biggest um, waste management recycling uh, companies globally. But also, um, you are a proper expert on the subject of waste and recycling. Um, Starting in the 90s, you studied a PhD in waste management policy, and you currently advise the likes of governments, trade bodies, and businesses on, internationally on waste uh, and recycling policy, correct? Yeah, I'm a lucky guy. You are, absolutely. Um, and I'm a lucky guy very much to have you here, and I feel under quite a bit of pressure to make sure that I'm asking you <laughs> the right questions in such a small window of opportunity, because I honestly think that not only... Uh, the target audience of this um, podcast being the supply chain community, especially in the consumer industries, but my friends, family, they're all really interested uh, <laughs> to make sure that I'm asking you the right questions and getting the right answers. So if I get it wrong, I'm going to have to come back and re-record it another time. <laughs> there are no stupid questions, John. Uh, mate, trust me, <laughs> that's just not true. Um, so look, just to give people context, we're, it's a rainy day in uh, Avonmouth in, near Bristol. Um, we're sat in a Port cabin office in a really wet, grey, horrible day, having just done a really interesting tour of one of your most up-to-date waste management facilities, which was really uh, great. Um, uh, so let's just get straight into it then. Um, let's start by saying you're in, you're in quite a unique job. Um, when I first um, was aware of you, it was at a Westminster Forum uh, um, event in yes. central London where it, it, was, it felt clear to me that you were a policy advisor and, and government advisor on a panel talking about waste and recycling. But then the job title, Director of uh, External Affairs for Suez, was, was, um, was unusual. Um, so how's that role come about? What, how would you describe what your role is? So it's a good question. I often reflect on this daily and weekly because I'm out and about. I'm very external to the business. But my job is to act as one of the interfaces between what Suez are doing operationally today um, and where we want to be in terms of processing, technologies, uh, service performance, and where some of those key stakeholders are going, particularly government, but also some of our peers in the sector, some of the other companies, but also the, the large supply chain that we work with and work for. Yeah. So understanding their drivers, mm-hmm. Being able to bring a, an operational strategic perspective to some of the discussions around policy reform and innovation means that hopefully we do get to that, you know, that world without waste, that resource revolution, mm. a future where recycling is the norm and, and resource consumption is less. And ultimately, I'm just one cog in a complicated world, but I'm hoping to join a number mm. of those cogs so we can have proper conversations mm. and, and take the, 
the agenda forward quickly. And so, what sort of um, uh, what sort of people and parties are you generally um, advising? You you mentioned last night that um, one of your kind of measures is how much impact you can have on, say, government policy. Um, how successful have you been able to? Oh, it's, it's, it's always difficult to judge whether you're you know actively influencing government policy. But when you look at the resources and waste strategy that Defra published back in December twenty eighteen, you could see sections of their document in terms of policy agenda mm-hmm. that resonated strongly with a manifesto that Suez had published six months earlier mm-hmm. with some of the conversations that we'd been having about reforms to the sector in terms of getting better monetary flows, setting higher targets, being more specific about objectives, building uh, critical time, mm-hmm. time frames, etc. So I think, you know, you, you don't judge it on whether or not, you know, did my target make it through the, yeah, the policy yeah. machine, but you say... Has the journey of policy evolution started to resonate with the kind of direction that, that we as a company believe is right? And I would argue that at the moment, the reforms that we're seeing around you know, issues like extended producer responsibility and consistent collections are, are issues that Suez have been talking about for many years. Many years yeah. and, and over the last two years, I've happened to be one of the interfaces for that, that debate. So I, I think it's resonating well. Great. And it, it certainly does feel like Suez as an organisation take that responsibility uh, to uh, you know the social responsibility side of things very importantly I, outside of just running a profitable waste management I, I think organization my my CEO who recruited me was, was was very clear on day one about joining Suez it was you know we want to be the company of the future it's that we yeah. want to be that resource business yeah. and yes we're a very profitable well-run organized machine yeah. but that's today tomorrow we'll have different challenges it won't be about landfill and it won't be about burning things the future has to be more innovative and, yeah. and, and more quality focused mm. and and he gives me the space and colleagues the space to think about these issues not in six months time but two to three years and gotcha. say how do we influence the debate but also how do we restructure our business so that we are primed and ready mm. for that resource revolution mm. we, we, we can't be offering the solutions of the 80s in in, in the 21st century they just aren't aren't appropriate you raise a good point about timing there, really, because this feels like a, a bit of a consistent theme as to what can be done now, what's right to be planning for the next two or three years, and then the future state perspective. And hopefully this conversation kind of, can kind of reflect those different stages of evolution of, of the agenda. Yeah, I think it's very easy to make a, a knee-jerk reaction today because there's an anti-plastics you know, campaign or there's mm. a... You know, Greta Thunberg is making some really you know, positive messages, but you can react quickly with a decision that actually isn't even good in the medium term. And I think one of my jobs is to keep an eye on what's a knee-jerk reaction yes. versus a longer-term sustainable solution. Absolutely. And help some of our customers, mm. both public sector and, and commercial, to, to understand that dialogue now so they don't end up locking themselves into the wrong materials or the wrong solutions. Correct. And, and I think that, that is uh, the, the minefield that faces, just pragmatically speaking, my customers. So my customers are consumer supply chain organisations. And what they want to make sure is that the changes that they make now aren't going to be made redundant by policy further down the line. So hopefully we can unpick some of that yep. and actually allow people in those positions who bother to listen to this to come out the other side with a bit more clearer picture as to where they maybe want, want, to, want to drive. But going back to yourself, like you've been d- doing this for like 20 plus years, you must have felt for a long time that you've been banging your head against the brick wall. And now that wall maybe is, um, is, uh, is uh, coming down a little bit. Uh, would, you, would you describe yourself as 
encouraged about the future or apprehensive around sustainability I, and waste? Or do you I'm, think? I'm, I'm, I'm pragmatic, and I think I came into the sector 25 years ago, actually. And um, back then, my PhD and my undergraduate thesis were looking at policy intervention. They were looking at the failure of national targets to, to actually be deliverable locally. <laughs> now I'm, I'm you know, 25 years on and we've evolved from landfill and we've got state-of-the-art energy recovery and recycling facilities. We've got, you know, we've got a world that's starting to talk about carbon and, mm. and emissions in a way that I could have only dreamt of as a, as a geography undergraduate student back mm. in the day. So where am I today? I think I'm, I think I'm an optimist today. I, I think I can see policy reform just over the horizon. I think we've got brands finally coming to the table talking with the entirety of the supply chain we've been working with you know i suppose the members of the public in terms of understanding how they see the world and working with our customers to to understand what could change and whether or not that would be good or bad for the entire system so i i, I see positive change in the next three to four years that will be beneficial to all Great. Well, that's encouraging for me because going into this, it feels like a Pandora's box, um, this, <laughs> this podcast series. Um, and I, I would love to come out of the other end feeling more positive. So hearing that from you is, is not what I was expecting to hear, actually, having, uh, planning to come in today. So that's really encouraging. But I mean, we, we've also asked some of the people that are going to be listening to this what, what sort of questions they want to ask. And I wanted to sort of open up in, in, in terms of our intro about with, with one of those questions, um, which is around, do you think there's too much emphasis on recycling at the moment um, rather than other elements of the sustainability agenda, such as energy consumption, CO2 and waste? It's, it's a very good question. And, and I get asked it frequently. I, I think our customers now have recognised that you know, recycling's been the easy win. Mm. It was the it was the activity that my mum could get her head around. I, yeah. I, you know, I buy stuff, I use stuff, yeah. I recycle it. I'm doing a good thing. Yeah. I feel better. Tick the box, and and I think now and don't have to change much about my neighbours. Yeah, yeah, well, uh, yeah. Not worrying too much about what I'm buying because I know that a lot of it is recyclable in principle. Yeah, uh, and I think that twenty years of recycling though, we've now got to a point where. Not everything is recyclable as you might have thought. Yes. Some things are harder because they're complicated composite materials. Um, and actually the quality of recycling is now the, the biggest issue because as you've seen going around our plant, we can only recycle what's put in. Mm. And if you're putting in undesirables, non-target materials, things that we call contaminants, then you're undermining the efforts of everybody else who are putting out clean material ready for us to do the sorting and reprocessing. So I think recycling is not the answer mm. it's part of a portfolio of solution but really we've got to get to the heart of the issue and that's what we consume mm. and the decisions we're making as consumers whether it be corporate consumers or or um, as residents and then allowing recycling to play a role in keeping yeah. those materials alive for multiple lifetimes yeah absolutely well we can i think we'll, we'll let's jump into the future state in, in a minute but you've raised a couple of things there around uh the process of recycling so just for you know for big people uh, listening, we've just done a tour of the, the recycling plant. Um, effectively, your goods in is mixed recycling and your goods out is um, sorted recycling to a quality of about 99.5%. What would you describe accuracy or 99.5%? Yeah, that's, the, that's the specification that our end markets for fibre, so the paper, yeah. the cardboard or the, or the plastics, for example, will want. Yeah. They want under... 
0.5% non-target material in that bale. Yeah. And, and so looking at the, the challenges of your process, it's amazing how much manual uh, picking needs to be done on, on the product coming through. It, it felt, to, felt to me, from what you were saying, what I saw, that there are kind of probably two main issues with the contamination coming in. Number one is around sort of um, plastic film and, and, and bagging. Uh, and number two is, is around sort of contamination done due to sort of food and, uh, and the kind mm-hmm. of product that is within the packaging. Would that, sound, would that be right? Yeah, I, th- I think we've got... We suffer from a wishful recyclers or hopeful recyclers. People yeah. will put out pots, tubs and trays even when they're not necessarily being collected by the local authority as a target material. Yeah. So our plant is designed here in Bristol for certain material streams. Yeah. The more non-target material that's in there, the harder we have to work to get to the ones that we want. Mm. So, yeah, wishful recyclers think they're doing a good thing, challenging us to do better, but actually causing a problem. Food residue or, you know, the, 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 the leftovers in your, your bottles or your jars, for example, they can change the way that that material is handled in a plant. Yeah. Particularly if they start to leak over other materials. You know, yeah. the idea of a yoghurt spending several hours in the back of a refuse truck or recycling truck and then, you know, turning some of your paper into paper mache yes. is not ideal for then how we might handle that material. Yeah. So there's a little bit about wishful recycling, there's a little bit about not quite getting the, the, the quality aspect right. But then you've just got the ones that haven't got a clue. Mm. Um, and, you know, we didn't see any nappies today, I don't oh, think. Oh, I saw one, yeah. Oh, well, there you go, yeah, lucky yeah, yeah. you. But, you know, nappies, coat hanger. Uh, underwear, coat hangers, I mean, you know, trainers, I mean... There was a trainer. Where do we see a sign saying recyclable, stick them in here? I, so <laughs> you've got, you know, there are quality. We can only do so much in terms of the magic in a site like this, whether it be automated sorting systems, which you've seen, yes. or it's the manual which quality. Which is quite cool, I have to say. Well, any, you know, any, any kit, any technology that can sort different polymers of plastic yeah. by, by laser beam without, without you know, manual handling is, is fantastic. But equally, some of the, the physics and chemistry yeah. being applied to dealing with different 2D and 3D shape objects yeah. means you can separate paper from card mm. and card from plastics. And, and so, yeah, these things are, you know, use good, okay. sensible engineering principles. So, so there's things that can be done by consumers, obviously, to improve the uh, efficiency of, of what you guys are doing here and just the whole recycling process. What about um, uh, manufacturers of, of waste, effectively, uh, or the packaging that, 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 that can't be reused? Um, Without changing anything about their packaging formats, what could be the minimum things that they could do to improve the recycling process? I'm thinking in terms of what maybe labelling or, or. I think I think labelling is a difficult one actually because there's an awful lot of labelling already on your average piece of packaging. There's labelling about salt content, sugar content. There's yeah. labelling about the material that the product is or the packaging is made of. Yeah. Um, you've got labelling that's advertising labelling, you've got labelling that, that makes it easier for the production system to, to move it and, 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 and put it on the shelf. So I'm not sure more labelling is the answer. I, I think a rationalisation of labelling would, would really help. And what about what, what's on the labelling as in instructions to consumers? Well, what, what could be improved on that? So on-pack recycling labelling, OPRL have recently moved towards what they're calling a binary system of of uh education if you like so that stuff is either recyclable yes and it goes in your recycling bin or it's non-recyclable and the yeah. idea here being that you don't get this confusion about wishful recyclers or hopeful recyclers or it's recyclable where i live but not where i work mm. so we're trying to make it simpler for the consumer and ultimately that should drive the brands uh, you know the manufacturers to to consider 
whether some of their items are now being considered non-recyclable, even though you might argue they are recyclable in the right circumstances. Or my least favourite phrase, not yet recycled. No. <laughs> I mean, is... Well, check locally is always a difficult one, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. With who, Check locally what on curbside. Okay, I'll tell you what, I'll spend a couple of days sort of just standing on on the street waiting well, that for a consist- qualified... That consistency agenda is, is, is changing. I think government policy has a very clear statement on consistency of the materials that will be collected both from homes, businesses and on the street. So in principle, in the next three or four years, not only is that labelling going to be clearer, but the expectation of the public about what goes in what bin, should we, sh- we should solve that one quite quickly. Okay. And I think that is a big step change because it also gives a message to the brands and the manufacturers about what they should or shouldn't be making in terms of packaging. Because mm. you wouldn't want to make packaging that then suddenly it's is considered not. non-recyclable by yes. the system. Absolutely. So it's not just about what's possible, it's about what's, what's real yes. in the real world. Okay, we're going to come back to today and the next two or three years because I think a, a lot of people are going to want to hear, especially around the um, EPR legislation and, and the mm-hmm. impact of that. But um, let's go on to, into like a, um, our time machine right? and fast forward to 2030 or 2035. Um, what do you think the world's going to look like in terms of packaging recycling at that point in time? Well, apart from being retired, you mean? What do you mean? You, you retired? Me personally, maybe some packaging there as well go. will be. I, I think 2035 is a, a good time frame, you know, where it, it, it's long enough for the policy reforms, which will be imposed by 2023, mm-hmm. to, to have taken, to be embedded in, in the system. It gives the system time to adapt because, you know, any packaging reform is not a straightforward one. So how do I see 2035? Well, first and foremost, there'll be very consistent collections wherever you live, even mm. if you're in high-rise. I think the what's recyclable versus what's not will have become you know, the standard. No, yeah. Nobody will, will ever get it wrong, hopefully. Um, but I think what you'll find with the brands and with the production and manuf- uh, manufacturing of packaging per se will be that we'll have a simplification. I think there'll be less polymers on the market. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, you can talk about HDPE, the milk bottle, you can talk about PET, which is the, the drinking bottle, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you've got all these other mixed polymers, composites, layered, you've got, you know, you've got the, the waxy cartons, yeah. you've got cardboard, you've got paper, um, there's the glass, there's the colours of the glass, there's the colour of the polymers. You know, actually, our, our, our um, packaging today is quite complicated yes. when you look at it. I think the future sees simplicity. Okay. So I think you'll have less polymers. I think you'll see things either in PET or, or HDP wherever possible. And they therefore, they will always be very sortable in a system like this very easily. Mm-hmm. I think you'll see less composites. I think materials that have a layer of wax or a layer of metal mm-hmm. to keep the, the produce fresh mm-hmm. will have to have innovated alternative solutions, either in terms of how that package is designed mm-hmm. or in how that package can be It'd disassembled. Be down. Right. Because that may be the future is for these difficult to recycle in a traditional mechanical plant, yes. it may be that some materials get collected separately um, and they get handled in a special way. So if you think 2035, we've got long enough for the pouches of today or mm. the, the tetra packs of today you know, the, the cartons, the waxy cartons, oh. they, they may well end up in a separate collection stream right. where they're being handled by a slightly different technology, whether it be advanced conversions like uh, chemical recycling or, or a more manual stripping of that material. But if you're building separate collection streams, it, it, that's making it even more complicated for the consumer, isn't it? 
Well, or maybe, can it be but but if separated later on, if everything else is being collected in one bin, let's say, or in a couple of bins, in terms of the quality. So if you keep yeah. your organic material, we're going to have a, a mandated food waste collection in the future. Yeah. So and that will be in place by twenty twenty three. So if we keep food waste away from paper, yes, then you don't risk the quality of the paper. So it may be a food waste collection and a paper collection with card, and then you've got a mixed recycling collection because mm. plants like mine here mm. can deal with cans whether they be steel or aluminium or the plastic polymers, if there's less of the, the, of the plastic types. And that means you might have a separate container for you know, those flexible items that maybe isn't collected in the same frequency. Okay. The one thing I would say is the, the complexity of that system, I don't think it'd be more complex. What it will be is there'd be more money coming in from the brands to enable that type of collection. Because and that's most, because of the EPR. Because of EPR. Because most collection systems today are, are, are been driven by cost yeah. by the local authority. Yeah. So we try to keep it simple for you as a resident, but actually we're trying to keep the cost as, as low as possible. Yeah. And as the complexity of end markets has shifted, we've got to deliver a better quality product. And that's meant the, the cheapest, simplest collection system hasn't always been able to deliver the best quality end market product. Okay. So we'll jump into EPR in a moment, I think, because it's so critical to this whole uh, agenda. And actually, I think it's not just going to drive change differences in behaviour, but differences in, in, in innovation as well. Exactly. Um, but one of the questions that was asked uh, of me to ask you is, do you see uh, a future where there are standardised, a small number of standardised packaging formats that all all products need to be in so that you can move away from recycling to reuse. Do you see that as um, the future? So uh, there's two issues here. One, I think you'll see more standardisation of packaging generally because automated sorting, AI, artificial intelligence, you know, robotic learning, I think sorting by shape in the future, we, we know it's pretty much doable today. Yes. If you knew there was only going to be six shapes coming down the belt. Yeah. That, that's easily programmable and in theory doable and deliverable. So a future where there's more automated sorting by those designated shapes and, 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 and types of packaging is, is well within the grasp of our sector. But that's different from driving an agenda which is more about refillables mm -hmm. or returnables. So slightly different things, but the idea that your packaging is now going to stay with you on a journey mm. and have its own multiple lives with you mm. or as part of a system that revolves around you. So it could be a home delivery and you're, you're getting returnable packaging. It might not be the one that you had last time, but it's that same kind of relationship that you're getting a, a better type of packaging, a, a better quality, more robust, um, maybe a, a better user experience in terms of how, how you feel when you're, you're, you're with it. But ultimately, that's going to get you to buy into an idea that you're just buying the produce, the product, and not the packaging, mm. uh, ultimately. So I think there's, there's a couple of quite key drivers there. One would, for me would be is, will refillables and returnables be, be taxed in the future the same way that packaging that's designed to keep your products you know, fresh for that period of the, the transaction, but then it effectively gets discarded for recycling? That's a very different relationship to your packaging and your consumerism than something where you're thinking, actually, I'm keeping that for several weeks and then I'm going to take it back to store or the store's going to pick it up from me next time they deliver. Mm -hmm. And, I, and I'm, I'm having a relationship with some brush steel, you know, Haagen-Dazs containers, for example. <laughs> okay. Um, that's, 
an interesting relationship. Uh, well, <laughs> plus Netflix, of course, other brands are available. Uh, yeah, ha- I'm just imagining you cuddling your uh, ice ice cream tub in front of in front of the telly Google of, of an evening. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's talk about. EPR. Do you want to just quickly explanation for those who haven't just heard about it? Hopefully, the majority of people uh, in the industry who are listening to this will already have heard about it. What's what, what's it all about? So, so the concept of extended producer responsibility is that the producer of the packaging in this case yes. is responsible for the costs incurred of getting that packaging back through the system. Now, historically. Although we've had EPR in the past, it's been quite a narrow definition of EPR and you haven't had the full costs of the system reflected in the cost of the packaging. So the future of EPR and the regulations that are going through Parliament currently are that you, you the brand, Coca-Cola or Procter & Gamble, whoever, for your packaging, will have a cost on top of your packaging cost, mm-hmm. which is a, a placed-on-market fee or a tax, for example. And if that bottle or Mm. jar or can gets captured by post-consumer, goes into a recycling bin or a deposit return scheme, come back to that in a moment, Mm -hmm. or you take it back to store or you drop it in a recycling bin on the street, Mm -hmm. that then gets collected, goes to a reprocessing plant and that material then ends up being refined into a new use of glass or or aluminium or or plastic. Then you would be entitled to a rebate or you wouldn't pay as much tax because you're closing the loop on that material stream. So the cost of the polluter pays would be less because you're not polluting. The system is designed to pull the material through. So there's no leakage to rivers, there's no litter, mm-hmm. it doesn't end up on a beach in Malaysia. Great. But if your system has leakage, so let's say that you know styrofoam containers outside fast food stores yeah. often get dropped near a bin, mm-hmm. blown up the street, taken by a fox, end up in a hedge and the list goes on, the, the producer of the styrofoam, or in the case of the fast food joint, may well end up with a much higher tax placed on that packaging because that packaging has never really been designed for being recaptured and recirculated. So would it be the packaging producer that would be responsible for the higher cost, or would it be the consumer business that's buying the packaging? Well, that's a good question. Currently, the... the the consultations are debating which one of those two points is it retailer or brand that's more likely to be uh, culpable well there's oh hang on you've got a whole other level so retailer is different to producer which is different to so, packaging yeah m- manufacturer it will, it will be either retailer or or, um, or producer of the the, the items yeah. yeah that makes more sense and, and that way you can tack, you can you know you can track them through all sorts of existing so then there'll products. be a financial incentive to consumer goods organizations yes for improving the actual recyclability yes. or reuse of their of their uh, waste of their packaging yeah in principle they should be looking to design pro- pro- packaging that is easy to flow through either the existing system or the system of three or four years from now that's evolving. Okay, so, so that's coming in in 2023. 2023, that will be live. The legislation should be enacted by the end of 2021, so it's not far away. So I can imagine with most... And that's UK legislation, European-wide? So it's, it's UK because of Brexit, but ultimately okay. the European Union has the same circular economy package of, of re- regulation going through their own parliamentary okay. system as we speak. And the two will be very, very similar in terms of... 
goals, procedures and targets, there's a slight variation about how much of the monetary flow is expected to go through the system. So you're not going to be able to have like some sort of equivalent of tax efficiency situation where a consumer business can be based no. somewhere outside of this legislation? No, there, there are some loopholes currently that have been identified in the early consultation, so yeah. we're looking to close them down quite quickly and, and we would not expect that to be the case. Okay, so this is real. This is imminent. Oh, absolutely. And I can imagine if you are in a consumer business with this coming up, there's an element of like, right, well, what do I do today that isn't going to be undermined potentially by a future direction of, of policy, whether it's right or wrong? Yeah. Um, so if you, were, if you were in front of, you know, sat in front of a consumer goods leader to talk about waste today, what questions would you ask of them? First of all, I'd implore them not to make a knee-jerk reaction that said plastic is bad because they've watched Blue Planet 2 and have been harassed by some consumers to, to switch away from plastic. The first thing I would say is, well, hang on, slow down. Because okay. it may be that you've got a very effective, highly recycled plastic packaging solution mm-hmm. that doesn't need to be you know, changed overnight because all this legislation is coming. So I would say don't jump too quickly. So what questions would I ask? Um, I'd ask them, do they know where their packaging is coming from, what's its recycled content, do they know how much of it is being recycled, even if it's a good guess mm. in terms of once it leaves them and goes through consumer hands, do they have an idea about you know, how easy it is for it to flow through? It amazes me, and I think Sarah and I do this quite a lot now, we, we have brands and, and retailers and some consumers coming through our sites now going, we had no idea that's how it ends up. You know, this real mixed material. Well, that's, that's why I'm here. You know, hopefully to pass that message back um, up the up the chain because I've certainly learned stuff today already that I I wasn't aware of. So, so I, I think most brands would struggle to tell you how recyclable their product is or their yeah. packages. Most of them will say it's recyclable. We know it is, and but that's not real recycling because that's in okay. a theoretical world. Yeah. If everything worked nicely, not in the real world where people are in a hurry mm. and it's getting mixed because it's in a lorry with a load of other recyclables. Okay, so what's the danger of like okay we. Knee-jerk reaction, we need to get rid of plastics. What's the potential worst-case scenarios well, of like you, what people can do with, a, with good intentions of really so, mucking... So there's lots of other materials you can switch into. Yeah. And, and certainly we're seeing people switching into uh, paper, yeah. uh, cardboard. Um, and those kind of containers may work for certain product types. Yeah. But you've got to be careful about how, how wet they get. And, and, and do they really protect the packet, the, the product in yeah. the same way. Yeah. So if the answer's no, then I'm not sure switching is actually the answer at all. If the answer's yes, then you've still got a question, how is that material going to be captured? Because I, you know, I get asked the question about coffee cups all the time. We've moved to a recyclable coffee cup, or, or better, a compostable coffee cup. Yeah. Um, and you hear this a lot in the market. And, 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 then, and then I go, but where does that go? Yeah. Because a compostable polymer, you know, let's say it's a compostable... Uh, plastic type or even a, a, a waxy carton for want of a better phrase just because it's compostable in laboratory conditions under the right temperature and with the right bugs working nicely that isn't the real world I mean which mm. bin does it mm-hmm. go in mm-hmm. do you put it in your organic bin and it might yeah. go for anaerobic digestion it might go for composting it probably won't go through an AD plant very well at all mm. it might go through the compost plant but because of its nature it's more dense it's more rigid. It's not the same as, as the green matter that would go through a compost pile. And ultimately, those cups come out 
looking kind of like a cup after two to three weeks. Right. So switching to something that at the moment feels like it's got good green credentials, if you haven't got the infrastructure around it... It's irrelevant. Well, you end up with a bigger contaminant. Mm. You know, plants like ours are constantly pulling out good-intentioned packaging because it won't go through. It won't go through as a plastic. It won't go through as a compost. It won't go through as a digestate. So actually, we start to take these out... Whereas I would have rather you'd left the original plastic in because actually I could handle that in the first place. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where that, that knee jerk... Now, in two or three years' time, it may be that the, the EPR reform makes certain plastic containers significantly more expensive to put on the market. Mm-hmm. And that may be you know, the, the, the reference point where some of these biopolymers may really take off. But at the same time, what's going to be the tax imposed on a biopolymer mm-hmm. in, in our marketplace? Because at the moment... There is no taxation place. There's no place to market fee. Mm. So people can innovate all they like. But it doesn't mean the system's going to be workable in three years' time. It doesn't mean that that packaging is going to be considered more environmentally friendly, more sustainable, mm-hmm. um, more acceptable, easier to handle. Uh, we, we'd, we'd advise people to come and talk to us yeah. about how might a material flow, where might you capture it best, what type of infrastructure would you need. If you need industrial composting to, to truly deal with then it's not a viable product. Well, it's not today. Today. But if we're going to build that infrastructure because we can see a lot more of this material... But then everyone needs it, then there has to be enough momentum of a move to that kind of... And that comes back to, are we going to encourage through regulation a switch to biopolymers for certain packaging types? Yeah. Maybe, maybe packaging types that have food. Yeah, we were talking about this last night, yeah. weren't we? Um, so let's go on to this, because this is, I thought this was very interesting. So, because it feels like you can potentially fix two issues in one go at the moment number one um if you if so if you if you're making a product that's currently in plastic that has a load of food in it it's bloody hard to clean in order to put it into recycling um then you could go to a a, a compostable option um what was it you would describe well, starch based is it, is it starch? well you've got starch starch based or corn starch based bags at the moment that sit in your your uh, your caddy in the kitchen, correct? And they're ideal for taking food scraps yes. out to your your food waste bin because they will degrade yeah. in the system because they're kind of thin and and, and 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 it works. But you don't want people putting a normal plastic bag in their food waste bin no. because they see other people using a bag. Is it compostable? Is it degradable? We don't know. Oh, it's a plastic bag. So you've got to be careful that this switch doesn't encourage others to do things that they think is right, which is actually wrong. So everybody using those kind of degradable bags mm. makes the consumer interface easier because you're not slopping stuff around the kitchen. Yeah. But each, equally, we can then design our plants as they evolve over the next five Kitchen. to 10 years to make sure they can cope with 15, 20, 30% feedstock being cornstarch bags, for example. But you'd want everybody to switch. You'd want the entire industry to go, so this, this is, is where, the standard we want. Yeah, so this, this is the challenge, isn't it? Where if you're an individual business... You don't have enough joined up thinking uh, yeah. to know whether what you need to do in terms of new packaging um, uh, materials versus everybody else, because actually it's the broader governmental or, or regional policy that can have an impact on a broader scale. Yes. And we, want, we need to look nationally and internationally, to be honest with you. Even the UK can't operate in isolation. So if there's going to be a huge shift around bioplastics or biopolymers or compostables, then we're all going to have to recognise that and plan for that. But what we don't want is everybody doing their own innovation, their own yes. niche, because then you end up with lots and lots of slightly different 
packaging types, which is the problem today, mm. and they all need slightly different treatment infrastructure. Mm. And, and the cost of building that is huge, mm-hmm. and so you end up not building it, and you end up... But then also the, the carbon impact, I would assume, of actually the recycling process gets bigger as well. The more complicated it is, the more handling, the more reprocessing, the more tech you need to introduce. So yes, keep it simple would be good advice. God, this is so complicated. Every time I feel like I'm looking for like a simple answer, <laughs> another five questions seem to pop up. And That's just why it's so exciting working in the resources and waste sector at the moment. <laughs> Welcome but, to my but, world. So, but I'm sat in the, in the mind of like, you know, a global procurement... Uh, leader for packaging or uh, a product designer, uh, a packaging technologist and wanting to make the biggest impact I can in the short, medium and long term and sometimes scratching my head as to you know what to do today which isn't going to have the, the opposite effect of, of what I'm planning. We've, um, we've sat, me and my colleagues have sat inside some of the biggest brands operating globally and had conversations about if we switch to this material or if we change the design to enable this to happen, would that work better or worse in the, in the infrastructure of today and tomorrow? And I think that is absolutely what we're asking your sector to think about is come and talk to people like us yeah. about is that really going to be capturable, processable, and is it going to end up going back into the system? Because if, it, if the answer is not yes, yes and yes then all you're doing is creating a different waste stream somewhere in the system. Mm. It might feel good on day one, it might have a better consumer relationship, it might be green, but if the system can't cope with it, until the investment comes in the system, mm. that's just gonna be another waste. Mm. And the cost of the system should end up back with the producer. So the innovator about this new tech packaging type, the new material, if they bring something to market and it, in the next year, they can bring it to market and mm. so be it. But beyond that, they won't be able to bring it to market unless they can prove that it can go around the system or yeah. that they've got the financial clout to invest in the infrastructure. Fair enough. And then even if that all happens, then you have potential capacity constraints because if somebody has come up with the, with the new or, or the, or the recognised plastic or whatever uh, substrate for, for packaging, then if everyone wants it, then there's not going to be the supply to meet the demand as well. Uh, and supply and demand has always been an issue in, in recycling because it's a, it's a tradable commodity. And as the UK grew from, what was it, 9% of recycling when I kind of walked into the sector up to 40% over the last sort of 20 years, we've now reached a point where, you know, we're sending as much material overseas for processing because the UK capacity has not been able to keep pace. Okay, so let's think about this in a slightly different way because you don't just, you're not just a specialist in recycling. It's proper end-to-end waste management. So... If you were then, again, speaking to a leader in a consumer goods business about not just their recycling strategy, but their general sustainability strategy, considering everything that we've just talked about, about the bit of minefield around packaging, where should they be focusing their energy at the moment? Well, energy is a good place to start. <laughs> um, no pun intended. I, I think if you, if you consider we live in a net zero carbon world and that's the policy agenda that we're all having to live with now, I think you've got to face up to the challenge of where is your biggest carbon footprint yes. and where can you have the biggest impact and ripple mm. on your supply chain. Mm. So for some, it will be making things more recyclable, obviously. For others, it will be, you know, the reality is stopping consumer behaviour in, 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 in the traditional sense mm. and moving to models of leasing, 
repair, mm. reuse, refill. And that will work for some parts of the economy, but not others. Mm, mm, mm. Um, some of it's going to be around transportation. I mean, you know, move, one of the reasons we moved away from glass packaging was because of the costs of moving glass, which is much heavier than, than plastic. Mm-hmm. You know, the breakages on the glass, you don't get breakages on the plastic. So again, if you're, if you're thinking about the innovation space, recognizing that there are gonna be new metrics that aren't just gonna be about your recycling rate, they're gonna be about your consumption rate, they're gonna be about your carbon or equivalent emissions. I, you start to see the world more holistically, and I'm sure Sarah would say, and you have to start thinking about the social benefit of the solutions and systems because things that create jobs, things that protect the natural environment. Mm. So if you're, if you're embedding your innovation in a new system that has other benefits, then carbon might not be perfect, but you've got these other offset issues that S- enable you to say, hang on, I've got a far better overall So if you're embedding, can, I, can you make that come to life like an example? If we were thinking about <laughs> changing, changing your service provision, let's say, in, yeah. a, in, a, in, a, in a manufacturing type environment, you might say switching out of plastic to glass okay. meets one agenda. Right. But then you might go, but the carbon impacts of doing that are not significant. But if we were to switch the system so that we're enabling our site to return land to wild flower yeah. and creating a more nature reserve type bees and stuff like that, we could always enable some you know, wild, uh, some some planting of some you know traditional trees. Over time, your site footprint mm-hmm. in a social value environment in social good, might change for the beneficial, even though the material that you're thinking about switching to on its own might not be considered the right switch. Okay. So it's a, it's a much more holistic view of how the UK and therefore decision makers at a very local to a very regional basis have to think about their overall emission and their overall value of, of any particular site or service or provision. So then Sarah, yeah. how, how do you think in terms of like the social impact of product design then because this this is brand new to me as a, as a concept like so I think it also comes through the whole supply chain as well yeah you know, we're going to look at you know we look at things in terms of social value in terms of local impact so if mm-hmm. you're using more you know local supply chains if you're using local designers yeah. that will create far more social value right, than you know, internationally so there's there's definitely that kind of more localistic approach mm. to that that process and that's where things like refill for example creates huge amounts of social value because yeah. you're supporting you know local businesses you're supporting more local networks because mm. obviously where they bring their goods in for you to mm. purchase you've got a lower environmental impact because you're you're not using necessarily as much mm. single-use packaging because mm. you are using reusable um products you know to, to take your goods home so there's it's that kind of holistic approach to the beginning of the process and also the end of the process as well. If you think about the social value associated with sharing, the sharing economy, people go, oh, that sounds nice, Adam. But let's be honest, I mean, in the sharing economy, I don't need a drill and no. a saw. When, when, once a year I'm using them. But if, if there's 10 people in my street and we share them, that That's seems to be a completely different relationship. Oh, we've got social value. We're, we're just interconnected. There's something this. called the library of things. There we go. And, and, and my wife used it the other day to, have a, to get a tea urn. Very useful. Um, for a birthday party. I didn't even know it existed. Um, and that is the sharing economy. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but everyone wants their own 
thing all the time. Do they? Well, that's do, the, do, no, no the, well, I, I, the, the general I, I think perspective is, is that. We, our generation, might... Focus on, certainly, is the focus on ownership that they didn't use and, to be. And the generation before us, yes. my parents, ownership was everything. That post-war, yeah. economic boom... Yeah. Absolutely, ownership was, was all about status and, well, and production. Well, you can argue that a lot of our sustainability challenges come from that sort of post-war America... Because you had to grow the economy. Of consumerism. It's all about yeah. Our economy is, as we discussed at length last night, yeah. our economy is based on that kind of production ownership model. Yeah. And actually, a lot of the things we're suggesting are kind of like undermining sort of that, that, that model in, in its entirety. And that's why I think we're in, de- you know, more le- less in parenthesis developed countries because let's, let's not be black and white about okay. what the definition of developed and, un- and less developed countries are, frankly. But in the westernised version of less de- of developed countries, I think they're going to be moving further ahead in, in terms of this sort of combination of social and environmental um, approach because they already have local supply chains, they already have local um, approaches to things because they don't have these huge um, brand machines working yes. within. True. But they're also, uh, a lot of those countries are also the uh, big producers of what we consume Cons- here in yeah, the West as absolutely. well. So they're also going to have a two, two-pronged change to their, their societies. One is based on what they're already doing, but also the influence of our change. And one of the biggest well. worries about sort of the developing economies, I mean, as somebody that spent 10 years of his life doing international development consultancy, they want, they're aspiring to sort of that middle class consumer because they've seen it they've seen the advertising from the brands globally yeah. they want to be part of it I so mean, they're aspiring towards perhaps the wrong the thing the wrong thing and I, and I think some of the work that you see with the development agenda now is trying to to, to slow this want to be a consumer and, and, and get them to recognise that their local chains their local services their local systems that have been embedded for generations are actually the thing that we're now. We trying, should be moving. We're to trying that. to get to where they are. Yeah. Don't don't break it because once you've broken it, you've got generations of undoing. We, we were talking about this last night. I honestly think so many of the solutions of the future already have already expi- existed in the past. Like Absolutely. we were talking about Soda Stream. I think there's there is a massive opportunity for somebody to come in and absolutely nail that market because we're obsessed with direct consumer products and stuff like that I, I'm not and that kind of refillable space plays Absolutely. very nicely to this you policy know, if, if, you, if you make fizzy pop of any brand you can imagine yeah. what do you what do you actually do as an organisation you know I think I think you facilitate the experience of drinking a tasty sugary fizzy drink in your mouth you don't necessarily produce filled plastic and metal containers no. full of mainly water right and so <laughs> we have to rethink the delivery system of the experience because we, we, we're delivering experience. And most things are delivering experience, aren't they? Or the benefit. And I think that's... Uh, otherwise you end up being the blockbusters of the past rather than the Netflix of the future. And, and I think if, if you want to live in a modern world, do you need to have lots of cans or lots of bottles stored in a fridge when all you actually need is your water... And your soda stream, absolutely, and you have it uh-huh. when you want it. Exactly on tap. People living in smaller accommodation, for me, I think you know this is where you see society evolution matching the, actually the policy agenda because that would be much more resource efficient. Absolutely, we were talking about that last night again, weren't we? The corner shop of the future could be like a like a, a drinks dispensary, Spencer. yeah, uh, or a, a, a you know. So your you, the final stage of the packaging is done on your doorstep. Surely. That's perhaps where... And you're taking refillable bottles exactly. back and forth 
They're not entering the waste stream. They're, they're being designed for multiple uses. Our carbon footprint drops, our environmental impact on resource consumption drops. You're healthier, you're walking up and down to this local store. The store's much more valuable to you. I'm not driving to a Tesco's or other brand 20 miles away for a shop because I don't need it. I, I'm getting what I need from that. And that local social value mm. of that community you know, I'm having a chat with somebody that I wouldn't have seen otherwise, and suddenly we're going, oh, what, what are we going to do at the weekend? Mm-hmm. And now you're doing something of, of value in the in the community. There's so much that we probably haven't quite tapped yet at the moment. And yeah. that brings into all the other things, that going back to your points around, you know, the bigger products. So, you know, you go at the same time and you borrow your hammer for the weekend or the, the saw or the drill that you need, because <laughs> it's there in the same spot. It all comes wow. back to that To same. the local community. Absolutely. Oh, bloody hell. You didn't know Imagine we're going to have to start talking to our neighbours again. Oh, who is it that takes your posting when it doesn't get delivered? It's my neighbour. I have to go and knock on their door because I've had another Amazon delivery. <laughs> okay, goodness, we've we've really jumped around a lot there, <laughs> which is the nature of a podcast. But I do feel like an, an obligation to ask you certain okay. questions that people have been asking me, and I'm looking at my notes. I'm looking, I've jumped around so far, so I'm trying desperately to to work out which questions to ask. So, um, if you buy a Plastic, it, so plastic packaging that is recyclable. What percentage of that pla- plastic ends up actually being used again, or does it degrade each time it's recycled? <coughs> so, so plastic can go around maybe five or six times because each time you want an amount of recycled content and an amount of virgin, so that you get the the consistency of the product. You get the you, you get the properties that you need because the the, the the polymers will shrink and, and, and deform. Um, but the reality of how much plastic is actually being recycled, some of the data coming out of wrap and plastic pack would suggest that of all package, plastic packaging, it's probably only about 10%. Oh my but when, God. But when you look at HDPE... So 10% of the recyclable plastic, or 10%, 10% of, of plastic of plastic. in total? So what percentage of plastic being well, used at the moment roughly is recyclable? Good question. If you look at HDPE and you look at PET, the two main ones that we as consumers would have, yeah. they're much higher. You could be getting up at 50% maybe of those going back into the economic system again. Okay. But the problem is the capture of them. Yeah. Once they're in the system, it's, it's easy to, to, to deal with them, really. Okay. But it's whether they get into our bit of the system or whether they're leaking, for want of a better phrase, into the residual. Okay, so assuming the capture's sorted, um, like so in plastic recycling, you're effectively saying that the life cycle's about five uses. So you, you're losing, it, roughly speaking, 80%, well, no, 20%, 25% each time. Okay, well, that's an, an argument to consider other, other, oh, <laughs> other materials plastics in the long term. The, plastics won't be the answer for, for the long term. Packaging in the long term. But what effectively we're saying is the knee-jerk reaction today is there might not be a better option today yeah. compared to what you're doing. So you might be doing more harm than good, right? Yes. Okay, so then what about if we talk about metal packaging, aluminium versus... So, so, well, steel. aluminium and steel, in theory, are infinitely recyclable and will right. go around 100-plus times. So what, is, there, is there an issue associated to the carbon or the energy so, required for the recycling well, process? The, the recycling, I mean, they go through some very intensive pr- production and, 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 and re- refining systems. So the energy content is quite high compared yes. to some other materials. But I think the real issue with, with aluminium in particular would be where if we were to switch some existing packaging into aluminium, which you're seeing with mm. you know, cans of water, for example, which some of your, some of your podcast listeners may, may, may recognise, which to me is a bit of an odd one. I'm not sure I feel comfortable with it, but it's out there. How much more bauxite yes. would need to be mined and all the associations of the problems of bauxite mining around the world to get you that additional 
aluminium to replace plastic. Once you've got it in the system, infinite recycle, easy to handle, why not? Mm -hmm. But I'm not sure I feel totally comfortable with the idea that we're going to switch everything to aluminium and go and damage a whole load more of the rainforest, for example. Gotcha. Uh, Okay. But you'd assume at some point there's enough aluminium in the system to not... There's a lot of aluminium Surely, surely we're not but it, mining it, as much bauxite as we're, we're we used not, to be. But, but the point is, if people want to switch... You know, think about how much okay. plastic packaging is in your bin at home. If you wanted to switch half of that into aluminium, yeah, in every house... That's a lot. That's a lot that of just switching. feels like a lot of material. Aluminium is very recycled now. There's no issues with right, it. So yeah, actually, yeah, yeah. you would have to find more. Okay. And that's the problem is how much more and where does it come from and are we comfortable with that production okay. system? What about um, like steel? Then? Steel, steel, I mean, steel's always been eminently recyclable since with the Victorian period. I mean, okay. I've got no issues with that. But more, I mean, I'm sorry, I'm trying, trying to, I'm giving you black and white questions right. which tell me if it's a grey answer. So does steel have the same challenge in terms of... Um, steel steel production is not as bad as, as aluminium. But it's still, you know, it's intrusive. And because it, of... And it's energy intensive. Yeah. So, so there's a trade-off here. I mean, the thing about steel, and the whole reason that, you know, we looked at tin cans back in the day, which is, of course, the evolution of the steel That's can. That's where I started my is, career. Well, there you go. And, and because they, they would protect food for a very long time, they're terribly robust. They are very effective at what they do. Mm. What, over time, though, they've actually lost market share. Mm. You think about dog food and cat food, which, mm. when I grew up, were always in steel cans. Yeah. Now, they're in pouches. If you think about baked beans, I'm seeing a lot of them now in the plastic tubs because mm. they're a single portion size. Mm-hmm. And so this is the problem is, you know, we, we've moved away from materials that actually were eminently recyclable mm. um, to, to materials to, that are harder. For perceived added value for, from for the consumer experience. For different rationale, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, and then what about paper? When, 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 is paper, when is paper good? What are the relative pros and cons of using paper? Ca- ca- cardboard, I mean... I, the thing about paper is, it, is you, you can argue it's a, a sustainable resource. You know, yeah. you've got forests that will grow over a period of time, let's call it 50 years, 100 years. You know, you've got a continual cycle happening in nature that we can tap into and use. But again, if you... Although start- I did read a book about trees, which really did change my okay. perspective because uh, forests seem to be living organisms in themselves of which one tree is like one end of individual cell, like in a brain which freak the life wow. out of me because they but, communicate with each other. Well, I think the other thing about forests is they, they become an ecosystem in their own right. 100%. So, so you're yeah. not just cutting down a, a yeah. forest, you're, you're losing habitat, and then there's the, the issue with the ground and the runoff. Yes, and, of course, yeah. So you've got to do it in a terribly sustainable way, which means you know the culling of mm. forests is done in a, in a measured way. Yes. Um, now, cardboard packaging is yeah, it's very, a, it's prevalent. You mm. see it all the time. It works very well. Mm. It's not great with con- perishables. It's not great with with stuff that's going to you know have a liquid form or a residue. Or whatever. Because if you treat it like the certain packs, packs yep, then you're combining two and materials the, together and it makes. And putting it that waxy really film on, although it will protect the product, creates a much harder process for us to then undo in terms of recycling. So that's the trade off okay. again. Is you know a lot of there's also there's also then sorry sorry to interrupt you. Does, uh, but hi, highly decorated and printed card, I'm assuming, becomes more of a problem or not in terms of packaging design. I, I'm I'm not. The more dies, the the, the 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 more complicated. I mean, the thing is, is, is turning cardboard back into cardboard, fibre into fibre. So as long as you're not damaging the fibres, um, I. I I'm not too worried. I think the issue Sarah, is... Sarah, do you agree with that? Because you, you look like you've got... You're, ju- you're, 
I was. I, there's, there are. It depends again. It depends on how it's printing, but also if you remember how many times you put it through the process, it will degrade again. A bit like we were talking about. The right. Okay. So the the harsher a process you have to put it through, will reduce the number of times it can go through the system. Okay. Fine. And the glues that are used again with with those. Right. Gotcha. That, that can really restrict the recyclability of them. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, the issue here is you're raising points about why what's the alternative packaging to plastic. And, and a lot of but the point is we're buying just make stuff. less shit well, well <laughs> the point is we're buying stuff that needs protection well we're not always because some packaging just isn't well some of it's just marketing based yes yeah, yeah, yeah. or and, it's over and, and surely that, that well then, then the, the new legislation is going to it's going to drive that desperately de- dramatically reduce the amount of totally. marketing based packaging yeah. yeah because you'll be taxed which is it. good because if you're I, I can imagine if you're in a consumer business and you can look at your marketing spend and go, right, how much are we going to put onto packaging? How much are we going to put online? Well, online has very little impact on the environment. Uh, then it, packaging is questionable. Then suddenly you should be, maybe you should be just focusing on, on where your marketing spend goes and, and think about it. I wouldn't argue with More that. realistic. Okay, glass then. We've touched on it already. Pros and cons. Glass is heavy. Yeah. Which means you end up with more carbon emissions depending on what your transportation mechanism is. So so is the question here whether you can reuse it as opposed to I, recycling? Ideally, you want glass that's refillable and therefore you maybe... And you think milk bottles, you think milkman yeah. when I grew up. You know, it was a terribly closed-loop system. Yeah. You know, delivered by an electric milk flight with limit, limited carbon emissions with a, a bottle that had an average life of 23. So you think about that and you think, actually, that wasn't a bad system. It's a great, yeah, yeah. Now, you know, we wanted more convenience. We wanted, you know, lighter carrying. And, uh, you know, everybody was shopping at the supermarket. Things change, context change. But the reality is, you know, the, the milkman is having a This comeback. is funny, isn't it? Like, you, you just said we wanted more convenience. So, uh, there's such a cause and effect situation here, isn't it? Like, you look at it today. Why do we want next day delivery? Because it's offered. And then suddenly we place a higher value on it. But... You know, what I don't need what I don't understand is when I order something online, <coughs> rather than having the cheap version which takes longer and the expensive version which is faster, why don't I have the eco option more often? Um, there's a there's a trick being missed there. I, I think if there was a price driver, and that's that's the thing for me. I think in the future, I don't think you, I think the price driver is potentially secondary. Really? I, yeah, I would be happy to pay the same amount. The same amount. Just, I would be happy to pay the same amount for a product to be delivered to me, especially if I'm, if I'm shopping online. Uh, slower, as long as I knew the Im- environmental impact was as lower. minimal as possible. Okay. Yeah, I'd potentially even pay a premium on that. I, and I personally, think, and I think, you're, in, I, okay, but I think for, you're in the minority. Yeah, fair enough. Because I, I think the way to get the, the rest of the general public on board it's is for that to be a bit cheaper, which fair, is why fair EPR regulation in the future and making certain packaging more expensive because of its design or its, or, its, or, its, or its manufacture will actually send a price message to the public. So it's not only the David Attenborough fans, it's not only mm. you know, the eco-warriors, it's not only the green tinge, mm. but it's actually the norm is to go, do you know what, I'm saving a fiver every week mm. because I'm opting for the, I'll get it in, in four days' time mm. in, a, in an environmentally friendly way. That, to me, I think you, you can get both the sustainable buyers and the ones that are driven by today's pricing mechanisms to then play ball. And I think that has to be the future for us because recycling, you know, we've got 45% recycling municipal in the last, you know, 15 years, but recycling has plateaued at 45% over the last five years. Why is that? Because we're not getting the rest of the people to do it right. And, that, and, and therefore, I would argue it's because we've got all the people that want to do it 
what we haven't got is the ones that don't think about it. And I would argue the consumer is no different because yeah. if they're not thinking about it and they're given three options, yeah. I'm not always sure they're going to pick the right option unless there's an economic driver that Fair stimulates enough. them to go, but, well, but actually... Yeah, because what you don't want to do is you don't, you don't want to make um, you know, environmental choices the, uh, the opportunity for the well-off. No. Uh, <laughs> you want it to be the opportunity for absolutely the maximum amount of people possible. Absolutely. Um, so price has to be an, a critically important... Yeah, okay, I take it back. You, you have changed my mind. Thank you. Good. Um, so then if we think about consumer packaged goods, we move on to some other things. What are the, the most... You know, what do you, where do you see the most challenging product types when it comes to packaging and waste? Now, you've talked a lot about the likes of, say, dairy... like. Thick dairy, dairy products, and is, is that one of the biggest sort of challenges? I, I, I think packaging types for me. I, I think flexible pouches. Yeah, there are solutions. They're not necessarily expensive, and they're not necessarily going to happen tomorrow. But I think there are they're an expanding part of your average consumer experience. Mm. They're, they're, and I, and I, so hang on, going back to what you just said, there are options. Are you talking about from a recycling perspective? Yes. But at this point in time, they're doing, they're not no, doing great. No, not at all. Okay. And they, why? They tend to, because there's the contamination inside but, it? And... Because most of our infrastructure isn't designed to cope with, with a patch. Right. So it's a plastic, yeah, but it's a flat plastic. Flat. Yeah, yeah, okay. So it, it doesn't go the same way. It ends up going with your paper more often than you want. It's a bit like some of the coffee cup examples. Understood. It just kind of ends up in lots of different parts of the system. Yeah. So it's easier not to collect it. And also there aren't ready-made end markets for it because it's hard to, it's hard to move. It's hard to process. So, so the system's not quite ready. the evolution of pouches then, would you not be better off just going, mm, pouches isn't the future? Well, no, because I think the pouch... The pouch industry has got together to start to talk about what that might mean there's a big European program C-Flex there's a number of UK businesses talking yeah. I, I think the answer is to go how do we create a system that works for pouches because pouches have got lots of good benefits but as a consumer I probably don't really want to be buying many pouches until I know that they can actually be handled by the infrastructure though. No? But they are. There's pouches are growing rapidly. As an ethical consumer, you mean? Oh, yeah, maybe. But your average consumer is going, that pouch is cost-effective and it's cheap and I can carry it. So I'm happy with my shop because I'm not now taking home tins of dog food. Mm. So I think your consumer is still thinking convenience, ease, simplicity. So if if the pouch sector can come up with solutions in the next two, three years then as EPR kicks in, mm-hmm. they may well be a favoured stream okay. that's collected in a slightly different way with, with its own end market. And it could okay. be that's a, a new technology, or it could just be existing technology being reformatted a little to suit them. Okay. We're running out of time, and I feel like I've, <laughs> I've probably either missed some really important questions or hidden the most important answers in a, uh, a melee of chit-chat, but don't worry, we'll, we'll be able to put them out in the blog, hopefully. Um, it doesn't seem to stop people from listening, so that's all good. good. Um, let's talk a little bit about fashion industry, because we've focused a lot on um, the packaging elements of products that are waste, uh, are waste. but actually the, the, it feels like the fashion industry, um, it's not just the... The, the packaging that is the challenge, it's the product oh, itself nice. and the disp- disposal of the product itself. Um, talk to consumers, right? <laughs> like, talk to me as a consumer, um, a bit like, you know, I think it's Emma Watson recently has, has yeah. been doing, and there's some really good, um, w- w- what do I need to know? What, where would my, 
purchasing decisions be best considered and what's the impact of the decisions I'm making so, as a fashion consumer today? So just as packaging doesn't really have the cost associated with the entire system to reprocess it, textiles do not show you the cost of their production system. So they're not showing... When you say you, cost, you see the impact or financial cost? Financial and the impact okay, cost. Fine. So you think, you think about, you know, potentially child labour yeah. in Southeast Asia. Yeah. You think about the amount of uh, water that's being absorbed to make cotton around the world. Mm-hmm. You know, you look at the impacts of the system mm-hmm. and you go, well, if, if they were truly uh, valorised or given value mm-hmm. and your, your denim jeans went from £30 to £70 to yeah. reflect that, then I think that gives you a much stronger message yeah. as a consumer to say, you know what, I'm going to look after them. Mm-hmm. I, I've invested heavily in those and I'm going to get you know several lifetimes out of them. And then I'm going to upcycle them or I'm yeah, going yeah, to yeah, yeah. pimp them or whatever I'm going to do and turn them into <laughs> pimp them. A, second, a second life. <laughs> or they're going to go to a charity shop and somebody's going to make a lovely pair of shorts out of them. I, but I, the bottom I, line is they get, they get maximum usage. We're busy going to certain stores, buying a, a, a T-shirt that was designed for probably one use, because the minute... Oh, two it, pounds, I'll buy ten. You put it in the wash, and it comes out with a funny shape, and you're yeah, thinking, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we, we've become accustomed, as consumers, to, well, this year's colour's X, and next year's colour's going to be different, this year's look is X, and next year's look will be different. So we're buying stuff on the basis that I only need to wear it once or twice, and I'm quite happy to pay two quid for a one-off. But I don't want to spend 50 quid on something that I might not wear next year. I think we've got to get back to, hang on, how is it that we can um, dress up and down and mix and match mm. outfits so that you do keep mm. you know, things to, for, for, for maximum usage? And that means val- valuing the production process. I think this is already changing in, it is. in, in society, and I'm, I'm grateful to the younger generations for driving this. Because I think if you walked into like, I don't know, I don't even know the words because I'm such an old git, like a prom <laughs> at the age of 18 in some new threads oh, no. uh, in a certain way. There'll be some people in the room who'll be like, oh, that's not very good for the environment, is it? Like, that would never have been thought of 20 years ago. Well, no. not, in the, not in our but, culture. But I, but I think back to being at university and, you know, I shopped in secondhand stores. I can't and, remember much. With and, the and, <laughs> I didn't drink. Um, and, you, and, and, and you had so much choice. You know, things that might yeah. have been cool in the 70s, things that were not so cool in the 80s. But, you know, you can mix and match outfits all the time. And I think there's something changed again. You come yeah. back to people wanting convenience and wanting today, and it's all about today, living in the moment. And actually, we've got away from having a wardrobe that's completely flexible and long-term mm-hmm. and to stuff that I just want, to, I just want it today. And, and I think that's about cheap. And that's because the production system doesn't reflect the yeah. true costs. It yeah, yeah. certainly doesn't reflect the externalities of the system. Yeah. And an EPR for textiles will come. Yeah. I think there's going to be a whole, um, there's definitely going to be a whole episode of this podcast on how behaviours are impacting this issue far more than materials. Yeah? Yes. From everything from retail behaviours, uh, encouraging consumers to think in a certain way encouraging suppliers to retailers to act in a certain way. Um, I think, you know, when you, when you think about the, the, the challenges of understanding where legislation is going to go and the fear of what changes to make in, in, in plastics, this and the other, your internal behaviours are the things that you can impact straight away so that you make sure you're not making the wrong thing and putting it in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, there's something called SNOP, Sales and Operational Planning, which has been a cornerstone for quite a few years of, of the consumer goods industry. It's just taken a back seat recently as people have been thinking about more convenience and those sorts of things. Like I see 
the balancing of supply and demand as the single best way of having an impact on your yeah, yeah. On, on your environmental footprint. And I, I, I look at both Sarah and my, my background, if you like, and we've both got social behavioural change elements to our training and, yeah. and careers. And actually, that's kind of how we see the world. You know, Suez has got lots of very technical people helping solve very technical issues, but a lot of this policy evolution, a lot of this system change, a lot of this engagement with customers in the supply chain has to be about fear of change, opportunities around change, and how we get that change to work with everybody. Mm. Because a knee-jerk in one place in that supply chain could have you know, terrible effects. Mm, mm. But if you can get us all to move together, mm. then I think you know, the opportunities are there for yeah. quite rapid change. Yeah, 100%. And I think the, I think the appetite's there as well. Isn't that, I think that's so. the shift. Like, but David Attenborough's you know, up the game for everybody. He has. And um, I, I'm not even thinking about in this in the series, I'm not even thinking about getting people to consider listening anymore. It's just like let's just talk about how we're going to do, do shit, something. yeah. Rather than like should we? We've moved on from should we, which is a really yes. bloody good first step. Okay, I've got two more questions, and I think might need quite a far quick answer. But the first question is, I don't think there is a simple answer. How far away are we from being able to measure the complete environmental environmental impact of any product life cycle? So what I mean by that is if you look at, uh, you've got a can of pop in front of you, how can you measure the environmental impact from everything, from raw materials, sourcing, um, impact on uh, micro on systems, that, that all the way through to carbon impact, energy and sustainability with resources, etc., all the way through to delivery. How, how far away are we from being able to do that? I would argue you could do it now. Okay. You just might not be able to do it for every container, every package because of where it's been sourced and the material stream. So where you've got data, there are people capable of doing that now for a brand or a or a material stream. We've seen it, we've contributed to it. We right. know we know our own data. Great. So we can talk about the carbon intensity of some of our activities. Sarah's given me a, a great, uh, you guys have given me a great name of somebody to get onto a future we podcast have. to discuss yeah. this very topic, which I will be following up. <laughs> I'll be listening in. Possible because <laughs> I think this is a huge thing, because as I've said, we're talking on, on to the how. If I can, you know, if, if I can provide people in the consumer industry with a, a tool that, that exists already that they're not aware of, I think that yeah. could have a massive impact. I think it be useful. So the final question, if you were... Um, a uh, financial investor, right? Um, because these guys, the, the, the triple bottom line econo- economy, sustainable financing, these guys are really contemplating where to invest their money for the best sustainable and social impact as well as, 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 well as profit. If you were a sustainable finance investor seeking to put your money where it's most needed to, to drive return as well, where would you invest? In my little circle in the world, or are we talking on uh, any on the whole waste, not just recycling, but just the whole discussion on waste and, and sustainability? That's a really good question. I don't get asked that one very often, so I have no ready made answer. Do you know what? Every time I get right to the end of the podcast, you someone goes, That's me. a good question <laughs> in about the last five minutes. So, and I, so think I really should probably ask those questions earlier on. I, I think a really good <laughs> refillable returnable, reusable packaging format has potential to completely game change. Mm. But it needs to have enough investment to get it over the initial inertia of a system that is still designed 
on buy, consume, and, ch- and, and discard. Yeah. So it, it, a new startup would struggle unless it's got serious clout and, yeah. and, and serious support. Because you're trying to change the infrastructure. <coughs> as well. but, but, it, but if I was looking at something that was, that was potentially could be the real spinner, the real opportunity, and sustainable and ethical at the same time, I think that's a space that I would be seriously looking at. Okay. Anything in terms of materials then? Um, no, for me, it's simplification of packaging. I don't think it's, it's investment in new. I think it's, it's if we can simplify choose, the stuff. Choose, choose a couple of formats and just then, make those. And then the investment in the mass. infrastructure downstream will be simple because we know companies like ours will invest because we know we can make that work and we can make end market uh, market demands. So we, we can make that happen. Brilliant. This has been awesome. Uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed my, my day. It's been a pleasure hosting you, John. Thank you, mate. That's very kind of you to pretend. Um, got, I'm still the, smiling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, very, very good. Uh, have you, are there any questions that I maybe should have asked? That you've, oh, is, I mean, there, is there anything that you think that we haven't covered that the audience of people that could be listening should probably think about only the ones I couldn't answer so I'm very grateful for you <laughs> which ones are they <laughs> no I'm only kidding I, 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 I think we've had a, a very thorough broad discussion yeah I don't, I don't think there was a question I was fearing when you phoned me up and said can we chat yeah. I don't think you've asked me anything over dinner last night that I was worried you were going to try again today so no I, I, I think we've covered all of the key bases for me yeah there's always going to be spin-offs. There's always other things we could talk about in more yeah. detail. But in terms of capturing the themes, I think, I think we're, on, we're on the right page. Look, I, I think there's massive opportunity for us to have some sort of follow-up, either event or discussion um, or Q&A, um, yeah. because I think there'll be people listening to this that are going, okay, this, we can tap so into this. So what about... Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I think we definitely... This is the start Happy of something to. rather than... Sort of well, the, the we, we, we'd love to be involved, because I think, I think we, we get the most out of speaking to people who then ask questions that we hadn't thought about. I, I, just, look, I just think there's massive opportunity for collaboration as well. We, we, we're doing a massive project. My business is doing a massive project building a brand new like, generation of manufacturing and engineering uh, leaders for a major consumer business. I can imagine that group of people coming and doing a, like a, a knowledge swap, swap in terms of we, your engineering processes. <coughs> like These guys are frontline, multi-skilled engineers. You can come over here and go, if you implemented this, this, this and this... From our technology, and then you could go. And I, I think there's that's really interesting because we we've talked to some people about doing exactly that kind of switch. Some of our customers actually who are in the, on on the manufacturing side, and of course we we already operate lean principles. And what what we found is quite some of our sites like this, which we we would call a processing site. Yeah, we're hiring people not from the waste industry. No, they're coming from processing sector because they're used to running inputs and outputs and it's all about quality and control hang on we're suddenly talking about recruitment we're in your space yeah (laughs) I can feel another conversation coming on (laughs) Adam thank you and Sarah thank you so much for everything today it's been absolutely brilliant